Hello everyone and welcome to the July 24th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. SEGA lost its bid in the Court of Appeal to avoid liability arising out of a defunct excess insurance company. Here's what happened in the case of CSAC Excess Insurance Authority versus the California Insurance Guarantee Association. CSAC Excess Insurance Authority is a joint powers authority formed to cover the workers' compensation obligations of its member counties through a combination of risk retention and excess insurance. It had secured retention of $500,000 from a now-defunct insurer, the Protective National Insurance Company of Omaha. CSAC paid workers' compensation benefits for employee injuries on two cases for its members, Fresno and Mendocino counties. The total amount of payments in each of the two cases exceeded the $500,000 retention. Claims were sent to the excess carrier, Protective National, but a Nebraska court filed a declaration of insolvency with respect to Protective in February of 2004. Thus, Protective forwarded CSAC's claims to SEGA for payment. SEGA is a statutory nonprofit unincorporated association to which insurance companies must belong as a condition of doing business in California. Its primary objective is to pay covered claims arising from the failure of an insolvent insurer to meet its obligations under its policies. SEGA assesses the costs of covering an insolvent's obligations against its membership, which in turn recovers this cost through premium surcharges on policies. This spreads the costs of insolvency across the entirety of the insurance market. SEGA denied the claims, essentially asserting that these were not covered claims within the meaning of a growing body of law embellishing the definition of what is and what is not a covered claim. So CSAC sought a declaration from the Superior Court that its payments for two of its members in excess of the retention amount are within the statutory definition of unpaid covered claims and that SEGA has an obligation to reimburse them. The trial court issued a ruling in favor of CSAC, finding that SEGA had breached its statutory duty to reimburse CSAC for the excess workers' compensation coverage due under the protective policy. And SEGA appealed, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the ruling in the unpublished case. SEGA contends on appeal that protective did not incur an obligation to indemnify until the retention limits were reached, which did not occur until after the drop-dead date for presenting claims to SEGA specified in the insurance code, and thus it argues these were not covered claims. The Court of Appeal rejected this argument and concluded that the obligation for excess insurance is incurred on the date of injury, not on the date of exhaustion of the retention. SEGA also contended that even if the Mendocino and Fresno workers' compensation payments were covered excess claims within the meaning of Section 1063.1c, they ceased to be once the liquidator ended protective's existence and cut off any further claims against it. 
The Court of Appeal found no authority for this contention and concluded that a liquidation termination order does not extinguish SEGA's obligations under California law. There were 20 deaths in the U.S. related to motion picture and television production for the five years that ended in December 2014, double the number of fatalities during the previous five-year period. And litigation involving two new fatalities during filming of the movie American Made, an upcoming biographical crime film starring Tom Cruise, is focusing new attention to safety concerns. The film is based on the life of Barry Seal, a former TWA pilot who became a drug smuggler in the 1980s and was recruited later by the DEA to provide intelligence. It is set to be released this September. During filming, a twin-engine Piper Smith Aerostar 600 was ferrying three pilots working on the set after a long day of filming in the hills of northeast Colombia, near the border with Panama. This early evening flight was supposed to be a short taxi ride home. Instead, it crashed in foggy and cloudy conditions in the Colombian mountains. Alan Perwin and Carlos Burrell died the only person to survive the crash was Jimmy Lee Garland, who suffered injuries to his legs, arms, face, and chest. Relatives of Alan Perwin sued the movie's production companies, including Imagine Entertainment and Cross Creek Pictures, as well as the estate of Carlos Burrell. Their suit alleges that Burrell was piloting the plane at the time of the crash, even though he lacked the skills to do so. Burl's estate countersued, claiming Burl informed producers and other parties related to the film that he had insufficient experience to fly the aircraft. The estate also alleges that the flight was not safely planned, prepared, or supervised. Great American Insurance initially indemnified the production companies under a $50 million general coverage policy. However, it just filed a lawsuit in Los Angeles Federal Court asking for a declaration that its policy covering the plane does not require it to defend the two suits. Great American Insurance claims that the flight in question, <clears throat> as well as other flights conducted during the course of production, may have been performed illegally. The accident is the latest in a series of deadly tragedies that have occurred on film sets. A helicopter crash on the set of a French reality TV show in Argentina earlier this year claimed 10 lives. <clears throat> Another helicopter crash in action for a Discovery Channel TV show killed three people in 2013. It was the worst film set accident since the 1982 Twilight Zone, the movie, helicopter crash near Santa Clarita that killed actor Vic Morrow and two children. And in 2014, 27-year-old camera assistant Sarah Jones was killed and seven others were injured when a freight train hit the crew filming Midnight Rider, a movie about the life of rocker Greg Allman. In a case that became a rallying cry for the film set industry, the film's director, Randall Miller, pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter and was given a two-year prison sentence, the first of its kind in Hollywood history. 
A Los Angeles Times report in March found a sharp rise in catastrophic injuries on film sets in recent years. And now our crime report. A superseding indictment was filed against Beverly Hills radiologist Ronald Grust, M.D., by federal prosecutors earlier this month. His prosecution is part of the aftermath of Operation Backlash. The superseding indictment contains 45 counts against the defendants. The original indictment contained only eight. The superseding indictment now charges violations of federal health care law under health care fraud statutes. And the superseding indictment now charges violations of money laundering not included in the original indictment and includes allegations of conspiring with Fermin Iglesias, Carlos Aguello, Julian Garcia, and Jonathan Pena. Operation Backlash has been an extensive FBI-led undercover investigation that revealed a widespread workers' compensation kickback scheme, including attorneys, doctors, and medical providers, who referred patients for health services in exchange for money. Operation Backlash was first announced in November 2015 when the initial round of federal indictments was handed down. San Diego chiropractor Stephen J. Riggler and San Diego workers' compensation attorney Sean O'Keefe previously pleaded guilty to federal charges. Dr. Grust's practice, California Imaging Network Medical Group, has clinics in San Diego, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, Fresno, Rialto, Santa Ana, Studio City, Bakersfield, Calexico, East Los Angeles, Lancaster, Victorville, and Visalia. Trial in the case pending against Dr. Grust was set for last June, but in March, defendants Grust, California Imaging Network Medical Group, and Willows Consulting rejected a plea offer in the case. So in April, his attorneys moved for a continuance, claiming that they did not have sufficient time to prepare his defense. It would appear that the newly filed indictment would provide the defense attorneys with details about the evidence they will face, including specific events, dates, times, and places. For example, in the indictment, prosecutors introduced the topic of overt acts. The list of overt acts is lengthy, specific, and detailed, referring at times to emails presumably contained on a discovery hard drive, and to specific meetings between Grust and alleged co-conspirators. This list illustrates many of the allegations the doctor will face at trial. The superseding indictment also seeks the forfeiture of his real property located in Los Angeles, and prosecutors filed a Liz Pendens, which creates a lien on his real property. His arraignment is set on the new indictment for July 27. On that date, the doctor's attorneys intend to ask the court for a continuance for the start of trial currently scheduled to begin on October 10 in order to allow them time to prepare a defense to the superseding indictment. A full-time special education aid assistant in Los Angeles has been convicted of workers' compensation fraud after an investigation found that she made false statements to obtain benefits after a student allegedly bit her finger in 2012. Shavana Ashley was found guilty in June of making false and fraudulent material statements for obtaining workers' comp benefits and was sentenced to three years of formal probation. 
She was also ordered to perform 200 hours of community service and to pay formal restitution of over $18,000 to employer, the Inglewood Unified School District. Ms. Ashley told the district that a special needs student bit and bent her finger, causing an injury that put her on disability. She incurred more than $16,000 in disability and medical costs over a three-year period. She was placed on disability and time off work due to her subjective complaints of severe and constant pain. Her treating physician eventually placed her on modified work restrictions for her injury that the employer could not accommodate. Due to the nature and extent of the injury, the claims examiner became suspicious and referred the file for surveillance, which provided evidence used in the case. The focus of white-collar crime defense at private law firms shifts depending on the enforcement priorities of federal prosecutors. Without prosecutors to bring cases, there's no need to hire lawyers to defend against them. And things seem to be looking up for medical fraud defense lawyers these days. At the American Health Lawyers Association, membership in the Fraud and Abuse Practice Group has grown 8% over the last five years to over 2,300 attorneys. And Chicago may be the place for new fraud defense lawyers to hang their shingle. The Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office is creating a new unit to prosecute health care fraud, a move that tantalizes the city's white-collar defense lawyers with the promise of more work. <clears throat> Assistant U.S. Attorney Heather McShane will lead the team of five prosecutors, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Stephen Chan Lee will serve as the unit's senior counsel. A member of the healthcare practice group at the firm of Ropes and Gray thinks there's going to be greater emphasis on the firm's building out their healthcare and government enforcement combined practice. Her firm has been doing that for years in other cities and would expect to see that happen now in Chicago as a result of the expectation of more prosecutions. Her firm boasts of more than 60 attorneys in offices across the United States representing virtually every sector of the global healthcare industry. And a partner in the firm of Arnstein and Lear reports that since 2015, the Chicago firm has brought in four attorneys who have experienced either with False Claims Act cases or with representing doctors before the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. The chair of the white-collar defense practice at the firm of Foley Lardner said, responding to government enforcement in healthcare fraud cases is a booming business for her. Whether the new DOJ Chicago unit will translate into new work for the white-collar lawyers fluent in healthcare will depend on the resources it receives. It will also depend on the complexity of the cases prosecutors pursue and the size and finances of the defendants they charge. And in medical news, radiologists who receive years of training and are some of the highest paid doctors. They are also among the first physicians who will have to adapt as artificial intelligence expands into healthcare. And the tech and radiology communities expect artificial intelligence to transform medical imaging, providing better services at lower costs. Experts say that an AI program can improve the analysis of an MRI, leading to better treatment. 
Keith Dreyer, the Vice Chairman of Radiology Computing and Information Sciences at Massachusetts General Hospital, said that an inpatient and AI radiology is going to be transformational. He thinks that every month there's going to be a new algorithm that will integrate into a radiology practice. Today, radiologists face a deluge of data as they serve patients and the work can be tedious, making it prone to error. But artificial intelligence will act as a diagnostic aid, flagging specific images that a human should spend more time on examining. And a company known as Arteries, a medical imaging startup, has technology that reads MRIs of the heart and measures blood flow through its ventricles. This process usually takes a human 45 minutes, but arteries technology can do it in 15 seconds. The remarkable power of today's computers has raised the question of whether humans should even act as radiologists. Jeffrey Hinton, a legend in the field of artificial intelligence, went so far as to suggest that schools should stop training radiologists. But those on the front lines are less dramatic. Some say radiologists will still be needed to make judgment calls. Someone's always going to want a real person to have made the final decision. So the future for radiologists may be similar to that of airline pilots. While planes generally fly on autopilot, there's still a human in the cockpit. The foreseeable future is not going to be human versus machine, but instead human plus machine versus a human without a machine. Some say the human plus machine is going to win the battle. Hospitals and pharmacies are required to toss expired drugs no matter how expensive or vital. The idea that drugs expire on specified dates goes back at least a half century when the FDA began requiring manufacturers to add expiration information to the label. Meanwhile, the FDA has long known that many remain safe and potent for years longer than the expiration date. Federal and state laws prohibit pharmacists from dispensing expired drugs, and the Joint Commission, which accredits thousands of healthcare organizations, requires facilities to remove expired medication from their supply. Though the government requires pharmacies to throw away expired drugs, it does not always follow these instructions itself. Instead, for more than 30 years, it has pulled some expired medicines, kept in federal stockpiles, and tested their quality. The federal government has stockpiled massive stashes of medication for decades, antidotes and vaccines in secure locations throughout the country. The drugs are worth tens of billions of dollars and would provide a first line of defense in case of a large-scale emergency. The federal agencies that stockpile drugs, including the military, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. In 1986, the Air Force, hoping to save on replacement costs, asked the FDA if certain drugs' expiration dates could be extended. In response, the FDA and Defense Department created the Shelf Life Extension Program. This program authorizes governmental stockpiling and the use of expired drugs. FDA's Office of Regulatory Affairs, 
Field Science Laboratories, centrally manages the program, including interacting with the Depart Department of Defense and coordinating laboratory work. The FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research Division of Product Quality Research analyzes the data and makes decisions regarding shelf life extensions. Each year, drugs from the stockpiles are selected based on their value and pending expiration and analyzed in batches to determine whether their end dates could be safely extended. For several decades, the program has found that the actual shelf life of many drugs is well beyond the original expiration dates. A 2006 study of 122 drugs tested by the program showed that two-thirds of the expired medications were stable every time a lot was tested. Each of them had their expiration dates extended on average by more than four years, according to research published in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. The billion-dollar question asks, why is it that this research has not extended to programs in the private sector? Well, pharmacists and researchers say there's no economic win for drug companies to investigate further. They ring up more sales when medications are tossed as expired by hospitals, retail pharmacies, and consumers despite retaining their safety and effectiveness. Some medical providers have pushed for a changed approach to drug expiration dates with no success. In 2000, the American Medical Association foretelling the current prescription drug crisis, adopted a resolution urging action. It said that the shelf life of many drugs seemed to be considerably longer than their expiration dates, leading to unnecessary waste, higher pharmaceutical costs, and possibly reduced access to necessary drugs for some patients. No one remembers the details of the AMA resolution, just that the effort fell flat. Experts estimate such squandering eats up about $765 billion a year, as much as a quarter of all of the country's health care spending. And in regulatory news, the DWC has issued proposed regulations to adopt the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule drug formulary. Their proposed rulemaking implements AB 1124, which mandates adoption of an evidence-based drug formulary. The DWC has reviewed comments received during the initial comment period and has modified the proposed regulations to provide additional detail and clarity. The new 15-day public comment period will end August 2nd, and members of the public may submit written comments on the proposed regulations until 5 p.m. that day. Some of the changes proposed in the revised regulations include moving the effective date to January 1, 2018, changing the preferred non-preferred drug designation to exempt-non-exempt -exempt to better align with how the designations affect the prospective utilization review status of the drug. Revised provisions relating to the phased implementation of the formulary and deletion of provisions regarding issues that will be addressed in the utilization review regulations rather than in the formulary regulations. The proposal also provides clarification of applicable dispute resolution procedures, updated drug listings on the MTUS drug list, and formatting changes. 
the DWC will consider all public comments and may modify their proposed regulations for consideration during an additional 15-day public comment period. The notice of modification of text of proposed regulations and the related rulemaking documents can be found on the DWC rulemaking web page. Senate Bill 1160, which became effective in January, requires all lien claimants who filed a lien between January 2013 and December 2016 and paid a filing fee to file the Supplemental Lien Form and 4903.05c Declaration Form. The requirement was part of the bill's reform measures to combat fraud in the work comp system. The DWC reports that over 440 thousand supplemental declaration forms were filed as required. This represents half of the over 880,000 liens filed in California's work comp system, which are subject to this new requirement. The lien claimants who failed to file the supplemental lien form and declaration will have their liens dismissed. This would be over 440,000 liens. DWC is currently reviewing and evaluating filed declarations for compliance with the legislation and with WCAB rules and procedures. The Department of Industrial Relations and its Division of Workers' Comp posted a new progress report on the department's independent medical review program. The 2017 report provides an evaluation of the program during the third complete year in which IMR data was available for all dates of injury. The report features comparisons with figures provided in the previous report, the 2016 IMR report analysis, and for earlier data. Officials concluded that IMR continues to provide expedient, efficient resolution of disputes over medical necessity in the California workers' comp system. At least 13,000 IMR decisions are issued every month. Researchers found that the average number of days from when the IMR case is assigned to when it is decided was cut nearly in half from 24 days to only 14 days. The number of eligible applications and the number of cases decided increased slightly from the prior year. Overall, the IMR overturned 8.4% of the utilization review decisions that denied treatment requests. More than 40% of all treatment requests are for pharmaceuticals, and three of every 10 pharmaceutical evaluations are for opioids. And now, Maximus Federal Services successfully launched a pilot of the IMR portal for electric filing of IMR cases. Several tests were completed in 2016 to ensure a smooth transition to a live site in early 2017. An IMR result search tool was added to the DWC website to further promote community education and transparency of the process. Over a half million IMR decisions are posted and this tool enables members of the public to search case decisions using specific criteria such as the category of treatment requests and the dates of injury. The site received over 21,000 visits in 2016. And in October 2016, the DWC launched its first online physician education module to help interested parties learn to use the MTUS. 
Healthcare providers can obtain one hour of continuing education credit at no cost. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.